Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Hi there, gentle listeners. Welcome to the Sewer Show, Squatters and Unwaged Workers Airwaves, here on 3CR, 855 AM. End of the rot. Hmm. Why not? Squat the lot. I am Cam Smith. And I am Andy Fleming. We've got a cracker of a show lined up for our first run in 2016. We're going to be interviewing Professor Rob Sparrow. Yes. From Monash University. Why, you may ask? Well, listen in and find out. And we're also going to be talking to Jason Wilson, a freelance journalist in Oregon in the United States, who was the first on the scene at the Bundy occupation over there. So we'll be talking to him all about the Patriot movement and uh, blokes with guns wandering the countryside. So let's get right into it. All right, so joining us on the line is Rob Sparrow, who is a professor of philosophy at Monash University. Welcome to the show, Rob. Good day. Good to have you on. Um, so I guess the primary reason we've invited you onto the show is because um, a few weeks ago it was alleged by a number of people online, known fascist activists, that uh, you are in fact myself and responsible for my blog um, uh, yeah, that was a pretty strange circumstance for me, uh, I must admit. Um, I'm obviously here we are talking to each other. I'm not you. That's true. Uh, I'm not. Uh, I think I'd maybe glanced at your blog uh, once uh, for some historical uh, information, but I'm certainly uh, not following it closely and certainly not writing it. So I was pretty surprised that people would jump to this. Uh, conclusion and surprised to so quickly become the object of so much hate as a result. So what um, what form did that hate take? Uh, on New Year's Eve, I had uh, messages on my voicemail, uh, pretty juvenile and inarticulate uh, messages, uh, I must admit. Uh, one person just grunted, uh, several people... Uh, claimed I was a pedophile or a rapist or that I was gay. Uh, they, I didn't use those <laughs> terms. They used less polite uh, language. Uh, one fellow uh, threatened to pay me a visit. Uh, so obviously um, people pretty uh, sad and lonely lives on um, uh, New Year's Eve uh, to be bothering to be ringing my voicemail. Also had some uh, similar material uh, in email and then, of course, various Facebook and blog postings around the place uh, were uh, both nasty and threatening. Right. And in terms of the phone calls and emails, were they sent from anonymous sources? Did people identify themselves in any way when they contacted you in order to you know, harass or, or to threaten you? Oh, I did notice that at least, I must admit, I didn't spend too much time uh, worrying about it. I did notice that at least one of the callers uh, wasn't bright enough to disguise the mobile number uh, from which he was calling. Uh, the emails from memory came from uh, anonymized uh, addresses. Right. Um, in terms of the response since then, I... When I first learned that someone had said, I think it was a, a local um, far-right activist called Neil Erickson had produced a couple of videos um, saying that uh, you were I and uh, your, I think he also enrolled your family at some point in some elaborate conspiracy to uh, destroy the Patriot movement in Australia. Um, since then, the my you know I've been following this online in terms of what's being said about the matter. It seems to have died down a little bit uh, in the interim, um, but it seems to be the case that it remains a conviction on the part of people like Neil and various other characters, including members of the Australia First Party, that I'm you know I am you. Um, are you concerned about what this means in terms of, you know, future harassment or, uh, you know, 
any of these parties taking it upon themselves to you know remonstrate with you more directly look i I think it's um not a great thing that people want to pursue uh, politics through uh, abuse and threats. Uh, even if I was you, uh, I wouldn't deserve uh, to be hospitalised or beaten, uh, as people uh, were suggesting. So I think it's already um, suggests that the politics that these people are involved in is a politics based around kind of uh, threats and uh, street violence, and that's a pretty traditional uh, right-wing politics in some way. Uh, It does worry me that uh, someone might lose the plot entirely and on the basis of this identification uh, decide that I'm uh, worthy of, of tracking down and acting against. I don't think, uh, given the sort of uh, irrational and bitter tone uh, of much of the material, uh, it's not appealing to people's uh, better nature. And I would worry that someone at any stage in the future is suddenly going to become obsessed with me uh, and try to do me harm uh, as a result of this. Well, the the primary evidence backing up the conspiracy was that uh, you only had to listen to the two of your voices <laughs> to hear that you were ex- exactly the same person. So hopefully this interview will have put pain yeah. to that. Although, I mean, obviously we're not dealing with people with the most uh, amazing oral acuity. Uh, but perhaps for a little bit more proof, I could ask you both a question that only I think one person will know the right answer to. If a robot were to kill someone, who is responsible? Andy? Who's oh. res- is it the robot's fault? Can I handball that over to Rob? You don't know. <laughs> I don't know. No. Only Rob knows. Yeah, Rob knows. <laughs> uh, thanks, <laughs> thanks, Andy. I mean, I, I guess uh, one reason why uh, I couldn't write your blog, even if I wanted to, is I spent quite a bit of my time uh, researching the ethics of military robotics. I spent a couple of weeks overseas visiting various US Navy bases, talking to people in the US Navy about autonomous submarines uh, last year, and I'm not sure uh, that that's kind of compatible <laughs> with, with your online activities. No, I think we can safely um, say Andy wouldn't be allowed on a Navy base. <laughs> <laughs> My uh, research has been about the ethics of what's called autonomous weapons systems, so machines where uh, you might want to attribute responsibility to the robot itself. I mean, most of the military robots available at the moment, it's pretty clear that there is a person who's responsible. Uh, There's someone who's uh, determined the target or launched the robot or controlling it by remote control. Uh, But in the future it may well be that an onboard computer is making a decision uh, about who gets killed. And certainly myself, and indeed now there's a large literature of people uh, agonising about this. And, you know, you could blame the commanding officer who launched it, you could blame the programmer, or you could try to blame the weapon uh, itself. And there's problems with all three of those answers. And indeed, because of the difficulty of answering those questions, uh, a number of people, including myself, think that we should not actually deploy these weapons. Um, I seem to remember reading a... Um, oh, sorry, Cam. See, this would have come up. If if you were both the same person, We would have every radio show would be about killer robots and they <laughs> wouldn't all be about Nazis. <laughs> we could do a show about killer robot Nazis, maybe, Cam, or that, no, that's flying my, saucers my or worst something, fear. is it? Oh, okay. Um, I was going to ask something. Oh, that's right. Um... I do remember, I think it was late last year, there was a petition that was circulated, which I think you had some involvement with expressing concern over the development of these technologies. Is that yes. right? Yeah. So there was a big robotics conference in uh, South America at which a kind of large open letter from the robotics and AI community um, was circulated uh, calling for a ban on the development of offensive autonomous weapon systems. And in the sort of larger scheme of things, that was in part because of um, a campaign that I'd been involved in via a a group that I was one of the co-founders called the International Committee for Robot Arms Control. Uh, And that 
organisation uh, was then instrumental in the uh, founding of a larger campaign called the Campaign to Stop Killer Robots, uh, which in turn was one of the things that produced that uh, open letter. Uh, it was actually an Australian guy who drafted uh, that letter. Uh, and the arguments it, were, uh, it was making are arguments that um, myself and other colleagues had been developing over the years. Is there, in terms of the Australian involvement, is there much going on in terms of the development of this technology here? Uh, not Look, on a world scale, you'd have to say no. I mean, overwhelmingly, these weapons are being developed in the US, uh, China and Israel, uh, also Russia. Uh, those would be the main uh, developers. Uh, there is interest in the Australian military uh, in autonomous weapons. I've spoken to a number of people in Defence Science and Technology Organisation who are looking at the policy uh, issues that will be created by uh, autonomous weapon systems. Uh, the kinds of uh, armed campaigns that the Australian government uh, wants to buy, it's hard to get the Australian public to uh, sort of accept casualties in those campaigns. So clearly it'd be much, obvious, uh, much better uh, from the military's point of view if they could send robots. Uh, and, and that's why people all around the world are interested in uh, robotic weapons. Uh, it's to try to uh, allow them to continue to wage wars when the public won't uh, put up with it, uh, with human beings, uh, our human beings being killed. Mm. Of course, human beings will always be killed in war. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, um, any final words, Rob, I guess, um, in terms of uh, our listening audience who might be confused about uh, y your role in my blog? Oh, don't believe everything you read on the internet would be the obvious. Yeah, uh, would be uh, the obvious uh, thing to say. Um, I mean, I guess one thing that disturbs me about this uh, whole business is, um, you know, we shouldn't be directing violence uh, against, um, you know members of the Australian uh, political community um, solely because of their online activities. Um, that, that seems to me uh, a kind of... Uh, it's a problem when the right is going to uh, proceed by threatening people and threatening dissidents, and that's uh, a problem whether it's... Uh, whether I am you or not. Mm. True, but you're not. That's <laughs> we have yeah. to yeah, underline that. So, all right, well, th thanks very much for coming on the show, yeah. Rob. No worries. Thanks for making the time. All right. On the line now from Oregon, America, we have Jason Wilson, a freelance reporter who has been covering the Bundy occupation for The Guardian over there. How are you, Jason? I'm very well. How are you? Fantastic. Jason, could you just tell us a little bit about yourself and how you uh, ended up in uh, the middle of nowhere in a snowstorm covering this uh, right-wing occupation? Yeah. Um, so I I am a freelance journalist, as you said. Most of my work is with The Guardian. I had pitched and, and successfully a, a, a feature story. Uh, there was a protest going on out there uh, on the 2nd of January, uh, concerning a couple of ranchers uh, by the name, uh, a father and son by the name of Dwight and Stephen Hammond, uh, who were being sent back to jail after a federal prosecutor had appealed their original short sentences. Um, and they were being sent back to serve out the rest of a mandatory minimum sentence on terrorism-related charges because uh, they managed to set fire to some public land adjoining their their ranch, you know, their their cattle station, as we would say. Had they had they set fire to a lot of land, or was it just like you know when a bonfire gets a bit out They're... of control? <laughs> no, I mean there are um, uh, they they've set fire to public land on a number of occasions. Uh, in 1999, 2001, and 2006, there were separate incidents. Um, you know, one of those incidents was uh, backburning. Uh, a particular pest plant here, called which is called uh, uh, the juniper sage, I believe it's called, uh, which cows can't eat in order that stuff that cows could eat could uh, could grow. But that's not their responsibility and not their job. You know, this is this is 
federally managed land. That, their excuse would be, well, you know, those guys aren't managing it properly. They also managed to, um, the last time they did it, there were certain dark hints that perhaps they were covering up evidence of deer poaching on public land. Now, you know, they did a plea deal and, and, and various other things, and a lot of that's kind of not clear and under wraps. But, um, yeah, anyway, uh, they, they were given a pretty short sentence by a trial judge, uh, and then federal prosecutors appealed that. Now they've gone back to jail in uh, San Pedro in California to serve out the remainder of a mandatory minimum sentence. So there was a protest about that in a second, and I had heard at that point that uh, militia uh, groups, uh, including the Idaho 3%, uh, the Oath Keepers, and this Bundy crowd had been organising in town ahead of that. So I went out just thinking I was doing a, a feature, and then on the day, as it turned out, the Bundy, the Bundy group went up and occupied uh, the Malhua National Wildlife Refuge headquarters. So it's a bunch of buildings in the middle of a wildlife refuge I found out about it by going to a public meeting, which was held after the march, where the other militias were really angry that these guys had departed from the plan, which is basically this crank legal strategy that they always try to pull, and had gone up there and occupied it. So I jumped up, jumped in the car, went up there, and sure enough, they were there with guns, guns out, and um, and they've been there since. They've since concealed the guns, but uh, we're now kind of coming up on uh, week three, I guess, of this occupation of uh, public land in a, in, a, in, a, in a wildlife reserve. So, um, yeah, I, I wound up staying out there for about a week and then I came back to Portland for a couple of days and then went back out there uh, and I'll probably head back out there again towards the end of this week. So I guess the question everyone's been wondering about this occupation is why is everybody involved seemingly named out of a Dickens novel? <laughs> Those names you're picking up on, like Lavoy Finnegan and Ammon Bundy, uh, yeah, they sound a little Dickensian, uh, but what they really are is Mormon names. Um, these guys are Mormons. They're members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Uh, they are not schismatic. Um, they're members in good standing, as far as we, we know. that The Church certainly hasn't excommunicated them. But they come from a part of the country uh, where... Uh, you know, the LDS Church is pretty keen on um, and has been for more than a century on promoting its own respectability and it's done a really good job of integrating itself with the American mainstream after being viewed as a bunch of um, charlatans and, and, and polygamists and whatever throughout the 19th century. These guys aren't polygamists or anything, but they do certainly... Uh, hew a lot more closely to the idea of prophecy and revelation than does the mainstream LDS church, even though they're members. And uh, certain things they've said have alluded to prophecies that Joseph Smith put out there about, you know, uh, the Constitution hanging by a thread one day and that, that Mormons would basically have to rescue constitutional government in the United States. Um and you're probably aware that Mormons see the, the U.S. Constitution as a divinely inspired document. And yeah, these guys are, to some extent, on a on a religiously inspired mission up there. At least the core group of, of the Bundys. There are some hangers-on who are pretty much regulation, you know, internet racists or whatever. But but that core group, they are uh, they are deeply involved with this notion of prophecy and, and destiny that comes from LDS, an earlier phase, I guess, of LDS doctrine. So Mitt Romney couldn't get the job done, so they've had to step up to the plate. Yeah, it's funny. Um, the particular prophecy that, that Ammon Bundy has specifically alluded to is one that's called the White Horse Prophecy, you know, which is slightly apocryphal. You know, uh, Joseph Smith never wrote it down. Uh, but but you know his his comrades reported on it and and it's since been repeated by a whole bunch of Mormon leaders and it basically says that at some point the Constitution will be hanging by a thread that's that very precise image which gets repeated and that Mormons will have to step up and redeem constitutional government and uh, basically take over and initiate something like that looks like a theocracy 
and and at which point you know Christ will return and and, and all this millennial stuff will happen. Now, um, Mitt Romney was actually interviewed about the White Horse prophecy and had to kind of specifically deny thinking that he he represented any kind of fulfillment of that prophecy. You know, and and like the mainstream LDS Church, you know, Romney was someone who, who was very concerned with that kind of image of respectability. These guys are not so much. I mean, they're they're taking the constitution extremely literally and they're also taking a whole bunch of scripture extremely literally i will say though that they're not they're not emphasizing that so much in their public appeals you know they're trying to make appeals which every rancher could agree with more like the kind of producerist stuff about opening up the land to exploitation again and opening up public land to ranchers and, and, and foresters and what have you. Is there any particular reason this reserve was chosen as a point of occupation? Uh, I would say there are a few reasons, um, as far as we can tell. One is that it's, cl- it's, it's close both to... Um, the it, it adjoins the ranchers' property. So actually... The public land that they set fire to, and the whole dispute revolves around this this refuge. Yeah, so um, it was created as a refuge in 1908 by Teddy Roosevelt to save migrating birds from plume hunters. You know, the kind of people who would kill birds for their feathers to so that they could adorn women's hats and stuff. So it's one of the first pieces of public land that have ever that was ever set aside for environmental values. Um, uh, so. In the sense that, in the sense that it's it's what's actually in dispute in the Hammonds case, and in the sense that it's a deeply symbolic piece of public land. You know, um, these guys. I heard Ammon Bundy say that in 1908, since 1908, when it was set aside as a wildlife reserve, it's been a tool of tyranny, and that's the way they see public land that's managed for environmental values or as a public trust. The other thing is that it's well chosen in that it's a pretty good place to occupy. The the headquarters itself, it's very flat country. You know, it's a, it's a basin. Uh, it's this kind of flat sagebrush country. But the headquarters itself is on a little hill that's got really good view, views of the approaches from Burns, which is the town that's the county seat. Um uh, you know, and and there's an observation tower up there, which is normally used for fi- uh, for fires and what have you. That these guys have actually got snipers in. It's a good kind of tactical spot, I guess. Um, and it's also well chosen in the sense that, you know, this it's the middle of winter. The bird watchers aren't out there. There was a skeleton staff. There was no one there when they occupied it. Um, they're insisting still that their protest is peaceful, that they're only going to resist if they're attacked, and there's nothing much else that matters out there in a sense. So they're able to get a lot of attention without upping the ante too much, I suppose. So, yeah, there's a mixture of reasons there, if, if that all makes sense. Yeah. Um, there's also been some criticism, I guess, of uh, the federal government's response or lack of response to the occupation and comparisons have been made with other uh, protest actions of late which have been met with uh, a sterner response. What's your reading of the uh, the government's response and how they're managing um, the occupation? At first I found it really odd. I mean, I expected them to block the road straight away and I expected that we wouldn't be able to get out there. And, you know, um, on, on day one, I kind of reported on everything that's ha- that had happened and, and said to the boss, you know, I'll try and get out there, but they'll probably have blocked block the roads by now. And they hadn't. And when I arrived, Ammon Bundy was having a media conference, and that's what's been going on ever since. It did seem odd. Um, I can understand the criticisms that have been made. I think that if these guys were... Um, uh, doing this in the name of, of, of uh, uh, you know, a certain version of Islam um, or jihad or whatever, uh, they, I, I agree that the, that the situation would be different. Um, uh, and, and, you know, I agree that maybe something like white privilege protects them from the label of terrorists, which is still 
kind of not being applied to, to them and what they're doing. It is different, I think, from some of the things that it's being compared to. I think that, um, you know, you guys would know this, I, I, I guess, from experience. You know, if you, if you protest in a city, you're kind of getting in the way of the workings of capital in, the way that, in a way that these guys aren't. Like, it, in a sense, it doesn't really matter if they want to sit out there. Um, I think that the federal government... There's a distinction to be made between federal agencies whose jurisdiction this falls under, um, who were, I think, deeply chastened by the things that happened in the 90s at Ruby Ridge and Waco, uh, and and really uh, try to resist, I guess, uh, any uh, you know any chance that bloodshed might occur in these situations now, and and they have been doing that since the mid 90s. I think. Local uh, police, local and state police are completely different beasts and have not had the same experience uh, perhaps that federal agencies have. You know, in short, it's complex. I can understand, and certainly locally, there's a lot of anger that these guys are able to act with this apparent impunity out there. Um, but I think it's, it's, it's complex. It's not quite apples and apples, uh, an apples and apples comparison with other kinds of urban occupation that it might be being compared to. Yeah, I mean, there is there is a bit of a difference between, like, a bunch of unarmed black people, like, protesting in a shopping centre and, like, guys with guns in a tactically uh, superior position. Yeah, that that is absolutely true. And like I said, I, I mean, I, I would never deny that, that race is playing a part in keeping these guys safe. I, I wouldn't want to deny that, but... I, I guess I'd also say that uh, anytime a law enforcement agency wants to try to resolve a situation without bloodshed, I'm happy to encourage that. In terms of the relationship between the occupiers, you've, you've made reference to them being informed by some uh, interpretation of uh, Mormonism and, and having connections to a range of other actors, it seems that the most of the support that's been expressed online uh, appears to be coming from what might be understood as being the contemporary militia movement. What Can you talk a little bit more about the place of this occupation in terms of that movement? Yeah, I think the, the broadest description to give all of these folks is probably um, uh, the patriot movement, I guess. And that's that's that doesn't narrow things down a lot. I mean, I think that the Patriot movement you can understand as encompassing certain rightward segments of the Republican Party, you know, right out to, I, I don't know, the, the kind of leftward fringes of white supremacy, if that makes sense. Um, the militias who were also organising in Burns and in Harney County at the same time these guys were, were groups like the Idaho 3% and, and uh, the Oath Keepers. Uh, the, the, the three percenters are a kind of uh, decentered, you, you know, um, uh, leaderless kind of model of militia. It's almost like a franchise model. You could, you could start one up tomorrow if you wanted to. Um, and that's supposed to be proof against infiltration and all that kind of stuff. Um, they were Sounds formed... incredibly easy to infiltrate. But, yeah, I, I don't know how that works in, in theory or in practice. But anyway, um, uh, they were formed uh, in around 2008 uh, at around the same time as the Oath Keepers were. The Oath Keepers draw explicitly from current and former law enforcement, arms, armed forces members, armed services members and first responders like firemen. They say they don't admit felons. Uh, their idea is that they've sworn an oath to the Constitution but not necessarily to this president or this federal government. And they're upholding this kind of uh, understanding of the Constitution that is shared throughout the Patriot movement. And, and that understanding of the Constitution, uh, the 3% aren't so fussy about felons and what have you, by the way. And, <laughs> and I've, heard it, I've heard it posited that, that um, you know, that th these, these, these guys are in this kind of dance where maybe the 3% is execute stuff that, the Oath Keepers are too fastidious to do themselves. You know, illegal stuff, maybe. Um, 
But the understanding of the Constitution that they share and that the Bundys share, you know, severely limits the role of the federal government uh, and says that the federal government really shouldn't own or administer any land except for military purposes. And it's it's really its only purpose is, is this kind of role of common defence, you know. It reserves a much greater role from the, for the states and it really sees all constitutional authority as proceeding from the local level, you know, so the county, the county level in the United States. Uh, the, the ultimate authority for them is the county sheriff um, and, and locally appointed um, uh, judicial officers. And in fact, they have this kind of, I mentioned before, this crank legal strategy that they're now executing in Harney County where they come in and say, you know, local government has failed, which it has in a lot of parts of Oregon. Uh, in a lot of poor counties, there's not 24-hour police services anymore, you know. Um, things like restraining orders can't be really enforced because because the cops are on from 9 to 5 because there's just not the funding for local services. So it gives these guys an opportunity to come in and say, okay, you guys should appoint a committee of safety and then, then invite we, the militia, in to kind of serve as, as a security force effectively. And that can be at least temporarily quite appealing to communities who don't feel safe. And, and so they work on this model of local authority and where they offer to be, I guess, the, um, uh, the leading edge, the substance of local authority. And to, they have this vision of kind of reconstructing American government um, uh, from the ground up, but, but, you know, don't get excited. What they really mean is, is I think, reinstituting a kind of localised patriarchal authority across the country. Sounds like uh, great fun. Um, you've also written uh, recently in The Guardian and making reference to, I guess, this being evidence of a trend within the United States but also Australia and elsewhere of a resurgent uh, right-wing populism. How do you understand these kinds of events in terms of that broader movement? Well, yeah, I, I mean, I, I'd actually be curious to know what you two think about this. I mean, it was just something I noticed while I was out there. Um, it kind of helps to be Australian in this situation because there are certain stereotypes Americans carry around about us and, and you know, mostly to do with Crocodile Dundee and stuff and they, they kind of tend to assume that, you know, you're going to be a certain way and, and a lot of these guys were telling me about the the contacts they had with groups like Reclaim Australia and, you know, how they were doing great work. And the guys who were kind of at the edges of the core group, I guess, people like John uh, John Ritzenheimer and, and Blaine Cooper are guys who do things like go make YouTube videos of them burning the Quran and stuff like that. And these are the kind of guys who are telling me that they've got close contacts with these groups. I, you know, you don't want to go too far in believing the stuff that they say, I guess. <laughs> but but I was prepared to take that at face value. And, um, you know, it occurred to me that um, a lot of the discourse of these far-right groups, a lot of their, uh, their, their kind of boilerplate rhetoric is actually shared in this kind of international space, which the internet and, and Facebook groups and, and forums and, and, you know, Twitter has helped a lot you know, helped them to helped a lot for them to to kind of construct this international space, I guess, for the circulation of this far right rhetoric and far right ideas and even tactics. But I mean, do, do, does that sound right to you guys? I mean, I, yeah, I think there is um, that aspect of what's going on, but it's it's also the case, I think, that those. As, as I think you noted in the article, far-right, explicitly far-right actors have been employing these technologies for some time, but it seems to be the case that of late it's uh, beginning to work in a way that it hasn't really worked previously. So I think if you look at Reclaim Australia last year, the kinds of concerns that were being articulated are ones that have been you know, spoken of many times in the past, but... Um, it's attracted some support and it seems also that one of the things that uh, gave Reclaim Australia a certain degree of success was, um, as in the case perhaps in the occupation at the reserve, um, a number of the people who've been involved in these networks are kind of stepping out of the shadows. They're being 
not only public but as public as they possibly can be and making a real show of their politics and the response yeah. the response has been you know um i think demonstrate that there's a there's a market for these ideas like a, a perhaps a larger market than had previously been considered possible because these guys have been working you know various a range of different characters for quite some time without seeming to you know strike gold as it were and it seems to be the case that you know this this notion of reclamation you know obviously has a long history but it really seems to be striking a chord yeah i mean i'll tell you two things that really struck me quite forcefully um I guess that that as you as you're I think alluding to there, there's this weird kind of celebrity that some of these guys have that they they build up and you know Ritzenheimer and Blaine Cooper hang out together a lot and they were supposed to be on guard duty at the front gate and you know they're there all day kind of making YouTube videos and making appeals to what they see as the patriot community and really work, working hard at curating their own online celebrity I guess um, and that seems to be a huge part of of, of what they do. The other thing that struck me is that those two guys in particular, I mean, the notoriety or celebrity or whatever you want to say it is that they have is largely around, you know, this kind of, this kind of cartoonish almost Islamophobia that they express online. Right. And that does not have a hell of a lot to do with what's going on, you know, in Harney County. I mean, I'd be very surprised if there are any Muslims at all in Harney County. But it's interesting to me that, A, there are these kind of polyglot groups forming where they've got enough in common, right? Like, even if their primary thing is Islamophobia, they've got enough in common or enough shared with that sort of broader patriot idea to to glom onto this stuff if they think they're going to get attention from it. And, two, that whole, that whole is, Islamophobia thing seems to be absolutely crucial you know, if there is a kind of international movement happening or an international space being created, I mean, Islamophobia seems to... Islamophobia and maybe anti-feminism seem to be the two things that are the, the glue for a whole range of groups around the world to kind of, you know, a way of them finding things in common, you know, and and cooperating and, and sharing ideas. And, uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean... Yeah. That... That's what's really struck me, I think. I think one of the things you noted in the article is, you know, there's this long history of people meeting up online around these sort of issues. Yeah. But, but perhaps one of the reasons why it's becoming more successful now than it has been in the past, even though it has been, you know, a driving factor in success in the past, now it's a lot more successful. Like, back in the 80s, you could jump onto a right-wing BBS, but you still had, yeah. to, you still had to know what that was, you still had to find it. In the nineties, you could jump onto a, a neo-Nazi forum, but you still had to pop into Ask Jeeves. Where's the best neo-Nazi forum? Nowadays, you jump online, and there's this whole global network of algorithms putting you in contact with people with the same interests. Like you don't have to go out and do it yourself. There's this whole the whole system set up to put you in touch with people who share your views. Yeah, I think that's right, and I think like that. Um, you know, I, I, w- w- without wanting to wade into stuff about free speech and whatever, I mean, I think that um, if social media services are, are, are actually trying to police this stuff, they're not doing a very good job. You know, there's, I, I'm sure you, I, I, I'm sure you guys are uh, monitoring a whole bunch of Facebook groups and uh, you know, little Twitter confabs and forum pages that where where these folks get together. Um, it's just it's just really easy now. It's the same reason, you know, it's easy for your auntie to be on Facebook or whatever or you know, your 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 three-year-old nephew or whatever. Um it's all pretty user-friendly. It's all pretty easy to do. Uh and and uh yeah, I think that the capacity to share video, you know, there's there's a guy up there, Pete Santilli, who's basically an embedded propagandist with these guys who's been live streaming the whole time. I mean, it's, yeah, as you say, it's one thing to get on a BBS, but these guys can now 
kind of create a media event on their own terms with very cheap technology and you know it just makes it that much easier for them to to live in this kind of parallel ideological universe i guess i mean and and that's that's another thing that struck me as well i mean you know say what you want about the tea party right or right wing republicans but they're still kind of oriented towards um getting concessions from a central government and you know reorienting the governance of the country these are these guys are in a world where you know the, the current readings of the constitution are completely invalid i mean their demands are currently that the federal government give up all the lands it's administering for the purposes of conservation or whatever and you know give it back to private landowners i mean that's a pretty expansive set of demands and they're not really willing to settle for anything short of that because because they're they're kind of on a parallel track, right? They're, um, uh, I you know they're they're not on any stretch of of the imagination trying to work within the system, as it were. And I think I think that if you can, you know, if you've got the capacity to jerry rig this kind of homemade media apparatus that 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 unites a whole bunch of people like that together it's well it's useful for you right yeah very much so um in terms of the ideology that's governing uh this particular group in uh oregon and elsewhere you've um suggested that perhaps islamophobia and uh anti-feminism are two kind of key components or drivers i mean i know you know, if you look at the situation in Australia, it's also very much about being opposed to the left, which they understand as being one of the chief impediments to enacting their program of, you know, cleansing society of Muslims and uh, ensuring that women know their place. Is that the case with, I mean, I know there's a lot of rhetoric about, you know, Obama being not only a Muslim, but a communist. Is that the kind of understanding, like an explicitly anti-left agenda, has that been incorporated into their I'd, rhetoric and so on? I'd, I'd say that's kind of below the surface for now. I mean, I think, as I said, you know, the the, the, the guys who are more at the fringes of the corporate group, like Ritz, people like Ritzenheimer and Cooper, who have the connections with broader Islamophobic movements or whatever internationally, um they're not kind of driving the situation they're hangers on. The guys at the centre of it, Ammon Bundy, Lavoy Finnicum, you know, the Bundy brothers, um, that stuff is below the surface. I mean, they'll, they'll whinge about the liberal media or the left-wing media, you know, if you prod them a little. But they're actually pretty good at crafting public appeals that sound halfway reasonable, you know, Um and even appealing to a kind of sense of justice. And and that's why the Hammonds was the perfect issue for them. Um, you know, it's obvious, I think, to, to folks like us, when you look at it, like that this is all about a kind of reinstitution of patriarchal white supremacy, you know, like a kind of frontier, manifest destiny, kind of producerist mentality, right? So, like... What's happened in their mind is that the federal government has kind of stolen their birthright and is destroying their lifestyle and is forcing them to consult with bureaucrats and and maybe even Indians, you know, or Native Americans about about who owns the land and how it should be managed. So it's kind of pretty evident if you take a step back that that's what's going on. Um, but like I said, their public appeals are, you know, quite clever in a way. They know that explicit they know that uh their father um uh you know in the bundy standoff down in nevada last year had a lot of mainstream support and then lost that when he um said some explicitly racist and quite archaically racist stuff i'd say ammons learned from that um and he's he's really crafting these public appeals that you know, maybe someone in Portland doesn't have a lot of sympathy with, but a lot of people in Eastern Oregon might, you know, if they if they had their critical faculties switched off for the day. Um, so, yeah, uh, it, it's a much broader appeal and there's not, 
he's he's trying to charm and flatter the media more than attack them. But if, as I said, if you prod certain people out there, they'll talk about how the left wing media is against them, and you know they'll 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 talk about Obama and stuff as well. Uh, but uh, I, I would say that no, there's not a clear or explicit anti left discourse happening out there. You know, it's more like they're presenting a case in a way that, you know, uh, you know every, everyone can agree with this. You know, every, any reasonable person can agree with this. Mm. So in terms of the – another concern that's been expressed is that this might um, serve as inspiration for others, perhaps with a slightly different agenda but similar to undertake – other actions, in other words, there could be an escalation in the number and, and kinds of these kinds of incidents occurring, partly on the basis that the federal government's response has been, you know, relatively, uh, you know, let's say weak. Um, do you see that occurring? Is there other is there evidence to suggest that others might be looking at this occupation and thinking, as I suppose in the case of the uh, Occupy Wall Street movement? That this is the way to go in terms of political action. I yeah, it's interesting. I mean, um, this is something I'm trying to find out more about myself. There's some fantastic uh, uh, left uh, activist groups working in rural Oregon. Um, so the Rural Organizing Project is one that, that people should check out, um, and and they're telling me that this is the kind of crest of a wave of a kind of growth of militia activity in Oregon over the past year or so, year or more. Uh, and, and, and I would say in answer to your question, I mean, there's certainly a tension there, isn't there? I mean, uh, you know, there's a tension between resolving a situation without bloodshed and an appearance of kind of impunity for, for people who do this kind of stuff. And I would say definitely, uh, in 2014, when the Bundys at their own ranch were able to extract this kind of negotiated settlement from the, from the federal government over unpaid grazing fees, were able to get their cattle back, and no one's been prosecuted. Well, yeah, I mean, what does that say, right? Like, if, if, if the law is just not applied to people who take up arms against the federal government, um, yeah, maybe that's going to encourage people to do the same. Uh, so there's definitely a tension there. I mean, again, you know, I, I'd say a broad range of people would, would like to see these guys just go home and and for this situation to end without shots being fired. But on the other hand, uh, not prosecuting them over and over again, if that's what happens, um, it's, it's certainly going to encourage the idea that armed occupations... Are, are, are a potentially successful tactic, right? So, um, just finally, um, Jason, where do you think things are going to go from here? Oh, boy, it's really hard to say. Um, you know, you know, the, 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 the biggest, I mean, the reason that they even get a hearing, the reason that groups like this even get a hearing in rural Oregon is that um, there's a three-decade uh, you know, economic and to some extent demographic collapse that's happened out there. Um, um, in the short term, I think that th- those guys are going to be pretty obstinate and they're going to stay there for a long time or in- until they're dug out. In the long term, um, uh, Oregon and the United States as a whole needs to... Um, you know, I mean, all of this can be pretty, pretty successfully sheeted home to issues of inequality and entrenched rural poverty, um, and um, uh, that's that's a huge a huge issue. But you know, we're now talking about decades also of militia activity in the Pacific Northwest and the, and the and the Western Interior. Ever since, really. Um, a bunch of industries collapsed due to you know during during Reagan's time. So, I mean, I don't know. That, that's the long term solution. I mean, uh, give people some hope and a, a stake in the country. Mm. Um, 
the short-term solution or the short-term outcomes, it's, it's just really hard to say. I think a lot depends on what kind of political pressure now starts to get exerted on the law enforcement strategy of just waiting them out. I mean, I think it's possible that locals and, and the broader, the, 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 you know, Oregonians and, and the country just get so upset with these guys that, uh, that you know, there's more pressure on law enforcement to, to go in there and get them, if you know what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. So who knows? It just, it uh, so much depends on public opinion, I think. Well, thanks very much for joining us, Jason. No worries. Thanks for having me, guys. I'm sorry my voice started to give out. I've got a bit of a cold. That's all right. Uh, if people want to follow your adventures in Oregon, they can follow you on Twitter at uh, Jason underscore A underscore W. Yes. And they can also look up your uh, articles on The Guardian. Indeed. Thanks very much, Jason. Thanks, Jason. No worries. Thanks, guys. All right. Well, that was Jason Wilson there talking all about the Bundy occupation. Interesting stuff, Andy. Very interesting. Uh, thank you. Good writer too. Very good writer. Thank you to Jason and Rob for speaking to us today. Yes, thank you guys. And uh, we've got a couple of little events to plug before we throw over to the Mafalda program. What's coming up? Well, next Tuesday, Cam. There's something going on. Invasion Day. Something like that. Yeah. Uh, if uh, people would like to rock up to Parliament House in Melbourne at uh, I think ten thirty a.m. Ten thirty sounds good. There's going to be an Invasion Day protest. And um, people are also being encouraged to uh, capture the flag, Cam. Is that correct? Yeah, uh, Sovereignty Solidarity have uh, suggested uh, find as many Australian flags as possible this Australia Day or Invasion Day and share your haul on social media with the hashtags hashtag capture the flag, hashtag Invasion Day and hashtag change the date. Uh, I don't know what they mean by find. Uh, they say be creative. Um, I I'm guess, sh- I think if you like go visit your local MP, they generally have a few flags on hand. One would hope so, um, but you might find some just lying around, I reckon. Interesting times. The okay. Mafalda program is up next. We'll see you next month. Bye. See ya. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.